that particular book of the Bible. This weekend, uh, Lynn and I saw a movie called Monzor Vincent. And I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but uh, in light of the Gospel of Luke that we're studying through, this movie was so appropriate. Monzor Vincent. It's a French movie. It's in black and white. It's probably from the late 40s, early 50s. And it is the life story of Vincent St. Paul, who uh, worked in France, to, uh, was like a chaplain to the kings and the queens, and uh, he gets a call from God to go and work with the poor people, and it's about that struggle. It's about his struggle, and it's about the struggle of the people who have money, and if you uh, would want to see a movie that will absolutely confirm everything that we've been studying, you get that movie, that will be, it's great. Now, you have to read the subtitles because it's all in French, okay? But it is probably the most powerful movie I've seen in a long time. Okay, Luke chapter 19. Now, we're going to go from uh, approximately verse 28 to 44. We will have to take a journey or two back into the Old Testament simply to uh, illustrate or amplify a couple of these verses. Now, we know that Jesus is on the last leg of his journey to Jerusalem. This is a journey that began all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 51. Uh, so we have gone basically uh, 9 or 10 chapters on Jesus' journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And Luke tells us all the things that took place within that period of time, which really... Uh, as far as uh, chronological time is concerned, probably didn't take that long. It's about a 60 to 80 mile trip. So how long does that take? You know, maybe it, take, it took a week or, or two weeks. So a lot, we've covered a lot of uh, chapters for just a two weeks journey. Now last week, Jesus is about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. He's about to reach that goal. And he corrects, he, he gives a final teaching before he goes into Jerusalem. <clears throat> to correct the idea that when he gets there, the kingdom of God is going to be set up. The Jews are expecting the kingdom of God to be set up on earth very quickly. And Jesus is going to dispel that. He says that uh, before the kingdom ever comes, he has to die, he has to be resurrected, and he's going to receive the kingdom. He's going to go to a far country, he told in a parable, which is heaven. And he's going to receive the kingdom, and then later on he's going to come back. And between the time he goes and the time he comes back, is an interim period. And for us, it's been nearly 2,000 years. So, with that understanding, let's look at verse 28. Luke 19, 28. When he had said this, that's clarified that issue, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, we need to understand a little bit about what Jerusalem's like. Jerusalem is the center of the Jewish world. It's where the temple is. It's the political, the religious, the economic center for the Jewish world. Uh, the temple served as a bank. Uh, people could actually put their money in the temple. Uh, all the taxes that are going to be paid to Rome have to go through the temple. So it's not only a religious center as we think of it, it's a political and economic center. And so that's where the power base of, of Jewish leadership is. And Jerusalem is also an occupied city. Now the reason Jesus is going to Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover feast and 
thousands of people from all over Palestine are converging on Jerusalem. Maybe two or three hundred thousand will be there to celebrate the Passover. Uh, Passover is a very volatile time in Jerusalem because the Passover is the memory of the Exodus. When Moses led the Jews out of Egyptian slavery, out of Egyptian imperialism, and now the Jews are under an imperialistic government again and their city is occupied, and they want to be delivered again, and every Passover crowds start uh, rebelling against the Roman government and anticipating the arrival of a Messiah who will deliver them. And so that's what the Jews are hoping that Jesus is going to accomplish. That's why Jesus had to tell them last week, uh, the kingdom's not going to come immediately. So does that make sense? Now look at verse 29. And it came to pass that when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, about a half a mile outside of Jerusalem, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of that. <clears throat> now, this is a familiar passage, and usually when you look at the... Uh, what we call the triumphal entry section of Jesus' ministry, you usually don't read it out of Luke. It's a sort of a, an abbreviated story. And, uh, but it's a, it's a familiar story. But there's a couple things I want you to notice about this. First of all, he chooses two disciples to go and find a cult. He commands them to go and find a cult. He says, find it and bring it. These disciples are not mentioned here, but I believe they are mentioned. I think we can determine who these two are that go. And we'll see that in, in a little bit. We also know from verse 30 that this is an unbroken animal. It says it's a colt on which no one has ever written, which means that when Jesus mounts this animal, it should be kicking and trying to buck him off. But when he gets on it, it's very common. It just moves throughout the city, which shows you his command over, over nature. Okay? The next thing I want you to know is the question. Look in verse 31. He says, if anyone asks you, ask you a question, why are you loosening it? See, there is a question. Now, who asked the question? What does it say there? Anyone. If anyone asks you, why are you loosening, loosening it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, who is this person or persons who question, who might question the disciples about the cult? Keep on reading. Look at verse 33. But as they were, and so it says, verse 32 rather, it says, And so those who were sent went their way, and they found it just as he had said. But as they were loosening the cult, the, who? Owners of it said to them, Why are you loosening the cult? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Now notice their answer. The answer Jesus tells them to give and the answer they give, which is identical. The Lord has need of him. Now this has tremendous implications, even for us, because Jesus' claim as Lord. Now listen very carefully. Jesus' claim as Lord 
supersedes the claim of ownership. Jesus' claim as Lord supersedes our claim as ownership. If Jesus is your Lord and he has need of something, then guess what you're to do with it? You're to surrender it. So, when you see this, you understand that uh, something's happening here that Luke wants us to see that on the surface you don't, you don't see when you just read it. You need to sort of think about it. You need to contemplate it. Now, what's happening is that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. And this is where I said we need to turn back to a passage or two. And I'd like you to go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, you're very familiar with this prophecy. But in Ezekiel 9, we discover why Jesus needs the cult. Look at Ezekiel chapter 9. And look at verse 9. Now, this is about the coming king. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 9 is about the coming king. It's near the end of your Old Testament. And here's what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation. He's lowly and he's riding on a donkey. A colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, this prophecy says that when Messiah comes, he's going to be riding on a colt. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, now this passage right here in Ezekiel deals with Jerusalem. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he says, knowing the prophecy, he says, go and get me a colt. Now in the Ezekiel prophecy, when the Messiah comes on a colt, he sets up the kingdom. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem, but he's not going to set up the kingdom. But by being on the cult, they will know he's a king. And because this is the way kings often entered the cities, and we will see that in a moment. Now, here's my question I want to ask. Zechariah? What did I say, Ezekiel? <laughs> you all knew I'm in Ezekiel. <laughs> Go back to Zachariah. If you didn't hear that comment, it said, Buddy said it sounds like Buddy Angel up there. <laughs> well, Buddy, my name's not Angel, my name's Street. I'm trying to earn my wheels. You know? <laughs> uh, Okay, well, that's not the worst mistake I've ever made. I can tell you some that were real rip snorting. Okay, look at uh, Zechariah, I'm sorry. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, uh, which deals with the coming of the king. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of. See how the Lord gets even with me, buddy? Huh? The Lord got even, then. Yeah, it was next judgment. I feel weight on my shoulder. Uh, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now that's where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem. Now why are they shouting? Why are they rejoicing? Behold, your king is coming. He's just. And having salvation, meaning deliverance. He's lowly. 
riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of, uh, the fowl of a donkey. So Jesus knows this prophecy. So what he's going to do, he's going to go into Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, go out and find me a colt. He tells them where to find the colt. Now, what I was telling you before, before you told me I was wrong, <laughs> was that... <clears throat> now I don't even know what I was like. <laughs> was that he's going to go in on a cult, and thus they will know he's a king, but his plans are not to set up the kingdom of God. He has a totally different purpose, which is very interesting. So when he tells him, he says, now I want you to go into that village over there, and you will find a cult tied. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. And guess what? That person will just give it to you. Now here's my question. Do you think that uh, Jesus had this prearranged with the owners, or this is some sort of word of knowledge? Now, Christians will say, well, that's some sort of word of knowledge. I say it was prearranged. It was prearranged. Now, the reason I think it was prearranged is because we have another incident very similar to this. So I want to show it to you. Go back to Luke. And look over at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This is the case when Jesus is going to have the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper with his disciples. And uh, I want you to notice how he's going to arrange that event. Look at Luke 22 and verse 7. Luke 22 and verse 7. Came to pass, the day of unleavened bread, when, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Look what Jesus does. He sent Peter and John. Two disciples. He said, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. They say, well, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? And here's what he said. Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, following him into the, into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and they made ready. And so they went, and they found it just as he said, and there they prepared the Passover. Obviously, this man knew somebody was coming. Jesus had it arranged. No one's just going to let somebody come into, the, into their house and just start eating dinner with 12 other people. So what we have is two people go out, very similar parallel situation. Jesus has it prearranged. If somebody says, what do you want? We want a room. Okay, here's the room. It's yours. So I think that Jesus, in a sense, understands this symbolism in Zechariah chapter 9, and he's going to fulfill that. doesn't mean it's not supernatural, but he doesn't fulfill the whole thing, does he? He doesn't come and set up the kingdom, which is what happens in Zechariah chapter 9. He fulfills a portion of it. Now go back to Luke chapter 19 again. And so... What happens is they bring the colt to Jesus, verse 35. They brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, this is the way a king was greeted. In fact, you might just want to mark here in the margin 
First uh, Kings chapter one verses thirty-three through thirty-five. First Kings chapter one verses thirty-three through thirty-five. I won't turn there, but what I will tell you is that David tells his servants to take Solomon, his son, and put him on King David's colt, his donkey, and march him into the capital city so that the people will now realize that Solomon is going to be made king. So the fact that he rides on this donkey into the city is a sign that he, like Solomon, is king. Uh, I've heard so many sermons say, Now kings never rode on donkeys. They always rode on stallions. Well, I can show you six or seven places in the Old Testament where kings rode in on donkeys. So, now that was a surprise to me this week. I have to say that. Because I've taught all that. But this, right, and if you look at the first Kings passage, you'll see there's a good example of that. But I won't turn you there, but you can look at it a little bit later. So look what happens. It says, verse 37. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, ready to go right into Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord Yahweh. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, who's shouting these praises? Who's shouting these praises? Look. Who's saying those praises? Look in verse 37. As he drew near the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of who? Disciples. <laughs> it's the disciples that are traveling with Jesus. Now, there are hundreds of disciples who are on this pilgrimage from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And they're traveling with Jesus. There's not only the 12 apostles. There are other people that are following him. Remember the 70? You know, and and there's, there are hundreds of people we know from the past lessons that crowds of his disciples, those who believe that he was the Messiah, are following him. They are the ones that are shouting... Praise the Lord, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, so on and so forth. It's not the people in the city. Now, how many times when you've heard of the triumphal entry story, what do the people of the city do? They throw their clothes down in front of the animal, the palm branches down, and they begin to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But guess what? Look in the other books, the other gospels, and you know what you're going to discover? It never says the crowds in the city do that. It's always the disciples. It's the crowds who are following him. And they're ones that are right before him going into the city. They are the ones that are making this proclamation. Now what are they saying in Psalm, in verse 38? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. Two things. Blessed and peace. This is Psalm 118. And they're saying, they're identifying him as the king. And they, that he brings peace. It's peace in heaven. Now, it's very similar to uh, a quote in 2.14 where the angel Gabriel says, uh, Blessed is the name of the Lord, or praise God in the highest, and on earth peace. Here, peace is identified in heaven, which is simply the origin of the peace. But the point is, is that it's the disciples who are making this proclamation. 
And this peace is not the kind of peace that you think of. It's not calm, emotional calm, or stability. It's not, it's not peace in the sense that there's no war. This is peace that comes from God. Peace that originates in heaven and comes on earth. And it's reconciliation. God is reconciling the world into himself. This world is in a state of turmoil, and we are separated from God, humans and nature. And what God is doing, God's presence comes to earth in the person of Christ, and he reconciles us to himself. And that's the kind of peace that they're describing here. So, that's what the disciples say. Now look at verse 39. It's very interesting. Look what it says. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, we've seen, if you've been in our class, that the Pharisees, a lot of Pharisees are traveling with Jesus. They're not his disciples, but guess what? They're going from point A down to point B to celebrate the Passover, and they're all in a great big crowd, and these are the guys that have been giving Jesus trouble on this journey. And so notice what they say. Rebuke your disciples. So, not only does Jesus have acceptance, he has opposition. And it's the disciples who are saying, praise him, here's the king. And the Pharisees are saying, rebuke. Now, what do they want him to rebuke? Rebuke the disciples. For what? For what? For saying he's the king. For saying he's the one who reconciles people to God. He's going to bring salvation. Rebuke your disciples. Now, by the way, it's very interesting. These are the last words, the last reference to the words of the Pharisees in Luke's Gospel. The last reference in Luke's Gospel to Pharisees is found right here. So how would you like the last words that you ever spoke recorded to be these words? A word of opposition to Jesus. Very interesting, isn't it? Their last recorded words are words that oppose Jesus and his purpose. Notice what they call Jesus. They say, teacher. His disciples call him king. The Pharisees call him teacher. That's all they're recognizing him as. Nothing more than a rabbi who has disciples. They don't give him the respect. They don't recognize him as the Messiah king. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep quiet, the stones would immediately cry out, meaning in prayer. Even the stones have better sense than people who reject Jesus Christ. And uh, which shows you that all of nature recognizes who Christ is. And uh, this is a, probably a reference to uh, Psalm 96, because in Psalm 96 you have nature... You've heard a lot of psalms like this, but it says the trees clap their hands and the mountains skip. They praise the God in the way they do that. And all of nature recognizes who Jesus is and who Yahweh is, and yet here are people who don't. Because their hearts are harder than stone in a sense. Now look at verse 41. And now as he drew near, he saw the city. He's right on the crest. And he wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, 
especially in this your day, the things which make for your peace. He weeps over the city. He said, if you'd only known the things that made for your peace, things would be different. Uh, but they don't know. Uh, and he weeps over that. Uh, what are the things that make for peace? Notice what he says there in verse 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace. What are the things that make for your peace? What would you have to know in order to understand what it is that's going to reconcile you to God? What would you have to know? Based on the context of what we studied in Luke. Jesus is king. Would you have to know that? Uh, that you have to repent and reorient your life toward the kingdom and away from self-rule? And then begin to live according to kingdom values? You would have to know those things. He said if you'd only know those things, you know, that would have been great. Uh, but evidently they don't know those things. Look at that phrase right there in the middle of verse 42. In this your day. If you had known, even you especially, in this your day. Very interesting phrase, isn't it? Why would he say, in this your day? If he had known that, in this your day. It's like they've had an opportunity. This is, you've heard this, remember we talked about the word today a few weeks ago? How it's an eschatological word? Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today is the day of salvation. You've heard those kinds of phrases. I believe that uh, God gives each person a day. A day when they clearly hear the word. And they either embrace it or they don't embrace it. And these people don't embrace it. They don't accept it. They don't recognize it. Just like the Pharisees don't recognize it. And so then their day is over. And then what happens? It says at the end of verse 42. <coughs> but now... They, those things that make for peace, those things that make for peace, now they are hidden from your eyes. Guess what? You had an opportunity. This was your day if you'd only known it. But you didn't take it. <clears throat> now it's hidden from your eyes. Now you've reached a point of no return. And basically what he's doing here, he is pronouncing judgment on the city of Jerusalem. And it's a lament. It's like a... An Old Testament prophet. And he weeps over the city because he sees there's no hope for that city. That city is basically condemned. So look what he says in verse 43. It's too late now. He says, for the days will come. <coughs> Excuse me. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you, to the ground, you'll be just put down, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. He pronounces judgment. It's too late now. They've reached the point of no return. And what he's describing here is the destruction of Israel, or the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. When Titus comes in with his troops and basically trashes the temple and he tears it down and Thousands of Jews are killed and the rest are scattered. And at that point, that's the end. So what we have is uh, he pronounces a judgment upon these people. Why does it happen? Look what he says at the end of verse 44. Because you, this is why it's going to happen. Because 
You did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize it. You uh, closed your eyes to it. Now, that's a very interesting phrase there. Look at that. If you compare verse 42 with verse 44, had you known in this your day, look at the end of verse 44, because you did not know look, the time of your visitation, which meant your day, you didn't take, an offer, didn't take advantage of it, and so because of that, Basically, the city is going to be destroyed. Now, what's this reference right here to visitation? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You remember seeing that word anywhere in the Gospel of Luke? Concept of visitation? Let me show it to you. First one, we'll go back at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. <clears throat> he gives his prophecy. And look at verse 67, Luke 1, 67. And now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the God of Israel who has, what? Visited and redeemed his people. Raised up a horn of salvation. So visitation... Speaks of God visiting us. It speaks of God's presence. Now, that's very important. He said, because you did not recognize God's presence. You wanted to rule your own lives. You didn't want to be redeemed in a sense. You didn't recognize God visiting you. Now look over at chapter 7. Chapter 7. This is after Jesus raises the widow's son. Look down at verse 16. John, uh, Luke, did I say John? Luke, sorry. See, there I go again. I'm, got two flat tires now. Luke 7, 16. Then fear came upon all them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has what? God has visited his people. So when we're talking about visitation, we're talking about God's presence. God visiting us in a redemptive way. And what's happened is God, Jesus pronounces judgment on Jerusalem because they haven't recognized that in Christ, God has visited us. He's the conduit, conduit through which God performs miracles through which God raises the dead, through whom God forgives sins. So if you reject Jesus, then you reject God. This is really what the kingdom of God's all about. The kingdom of God is about God's presence. Remember when God created the world and he created Adam and Eve and he told them to go out and subdue the world. Remember that? Take dominion over it. You see, remember that word, dominion? Subdue the world and take dominion over it. He made them rulers under him. Under him. 
They were like the vice regents. They were going to rule the world under God. And in that garden, God walked with them. He was right there in their midst. That's a picture of the kingdom of God right there. And God would visit his people occasionally through prophets in the Old Testament. He would speak through prophets and he would perform miracles through prophets. And they'd say, there's a prophet, just like in that verse right there, 716, where it says, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. God would speak to his people and visit his people through these prophets. You get a glimpse of what the kingdom was like. And then God stopped speaking for 400 years. And then came John the Baptist, the forerunner, saying... Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He led the way for Jesus. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's anointed me to do all these things. Heal the blind. Heal the brokenhearted. Raise up the lame. And Jesus said back in Luke 11, and if what I'm doing is being done by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God's come upon you. So in Christ, what we have is God's presence, God visiting us in Christ. And they didn't recognize it. They rejected Jesus. The crowds rejected Jesus. The Pharisees rejected Jesus. Jesus condemns that city. And that city is going to be destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean every person that's living in Jerusalem is lost. Individuals might recognize, hey, Jesus is God's representative on earth, and they would give their allegiance to him. And they got saved after Jesus went to heaven. Do we have Jews getting saved in Jerusalem in the book of Acts? Yes, but guess what? The city and the nation itself is condemned. One, because they rejected Jesus as the king. And they've chosen to go with their own religious and political leaders. Follow the state. Oh, our, our, our political religious leaders don't say Jesus is the Messiah, so we'll just go along with them and we'll follow their plan. Well, guess what? That's why Jerusalem was basically condemned. We have a similar situation right here in America. We have some choices to make. Don't think America stands for God. I don't care what administration it is. Your allegiance is not with America, <clears throat> primarily and foremost. Where's your allegiance? Your allegiance is the kingdom of God. Because, you know, I don't know, God could have pronounced already, and we might not have known it. He may, in his mind, have pronounced judgment on America. Somebody said, America's not found in the Bible. When you look at the book of Revelation, you don't see America listed. So maybe God's already judged America. So if you just listen to the leaders of our country who don't want to acknowledge God and don't want to acknowledge Christ, then you go down with America. So what you have to do is you have to go against the tide. Now those Christian leaders in America who are acknowledging Christ, that's another story. But I'm just talking about the general atmosphere that's in our nation. So our allegiance has to go to Christ. And to his kingdom. And to reject Christ, to reject Jesus, is to reject God and God's divine plan. 
Now, today is the day of your visitation. We've had an opportunity here very clearly. Many of us have heard this gospel year after year. If you've been in this Sunday school class, you've heard the verse-by-verse verse verse exposition every day. And God has visited us through his word. Not necessarily through me, but through his word. And he has spoken to us very clearly, and now every one of us in this class knows exactly what God wants us to do. You say, well, what do I have to do? Well, you have to do the same thing that people in the Bible had to do. You have to repent. You have to break with the past and reorient your life toward God's kingdom. You start over fresh. And you take God in his word. You trust God. You put your faith in God and in his word. And you give your allegiance to King Jesus. And you say, no matter what, I'm giving my allegiance to King Jesus. I want God's divine plan to be my plan. I want to get in on this. And if you do that, then the same promise that Jesus makes to his disciples, that, he, that they will be part of the kingdom of God, becomes our promise. But if we don't fully surrender and we want to continue to control our lives, then we end up like the nations of the world, which at the end of Revelation, whatever nations are in existence, are ultimately judged. And if we want to be part of that plan, then we're judged. But if we want to be part of God's plan, we enter the kingdom of God. So what we need to say is, I want to fully surrender my life to Christ. And his right as Lord supersedes my right as owner. Of everything that I have, and even my life itself. And when we do that, then what happens is that we enter the kingdom of God. If we don't, we see what happens next week. Jesus comes in, and he cleanses out the temple. You say, well, I'm standing with this group. Well, he says, well, guess what? Here's what happens to that group. Just wipes them right out. See? So, when he, wipes out the king, when he wipes out the temple, he's saying, you're missing it. It's no longer in the temple. The temple is not the place where salvation is found. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And so that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And... Uh, even when it's uh, offered in a, a haughty way and, and words are misspoken, uh, your spirit can speak to hearts. And your word stands sure. And one thing we see is that there were those who said, blessed is the king. Peace in the highest. And there are others who say, we will not have this man rule over us. Oh, Lord, help us to be in that former group. Help us to fully surrender and put everything that we have, our breath, our energy, our resources, at your dispense for your glory and for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.